Emily, it's kind of crazy to me and exciting to think that one day I will be able to go to a store and I'll be looking at a product and I'll be able to tell exactly how much CO2 was emitted to produce that product. And then hopefully somebody would have bought a carbon removal credit to offset that. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'll tell you what's crazy to me, Tom. Tell me. We're thinking about this future, but there's also people out there who are talking about historical emissions. Emissions that aren't happening right now, but have happened in the past, and offsetting those. The computer I had in 2005 could one day be offset. Is that what you're saying? It's exactly what I'm saying, Tom. And maybe sooner than you think. Mm. I didn't even know emissions existed then. <laughs> I, mean, I would have only been 10 years old or whatever it was. But here's my question. Where do we draw the line? Am I going to become responsible for offsetting the emissions that, like, my ancestors put out there into the atmosphere? Yeah, okay. Like, am I going to be out of pocket because my great uncle was a pilot or something? I can't start saving. I mean, are we going to be out of pocket for all the pets that we have to offset? Oh, yeah, the pets. Your dogs and your cats. Who's going to offset their emissions? Because it won't be them. Oh, no, they don't care at all. Hello, 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 hello. I'm Emily Swaddle. And I am Tom Praviti. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Carbon Removal Show. So, listeners, by this point in listening to the show, we know that you know that this space has a handful of really big names who are putting their money where their mouth is and investing in carbon removal. Now, I don't want to brag, but the Carbon Removal Show We've become kind of a big deal. And this season, we have managed to bag an interview with none other than Microsoft. My days, Tom. Yeah, when I found out we were going to be speaking with Microsoft, I was ecstatic, maybe a bit nervous because <laughs> of all the great work that they've been doing in the space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But most of all, yeah, excited, excited to speak with them and pick their brains. So we spoke to the one and only Elizabeth Wilmot. She's the director of the Carbon Programme at Microsoft. As previously mentioned, they have been doing a lot of work in carbon removal since 2020. And so we wanted to unpack this with them. So Tom, you got to interview them. I wasn't there. Tell me what you were thinking before you went into that interview. So firstly, we wanted to know what is life like being a buyer? And when I say a buyer, I mean a big buyer like Microsoft. Obviously, we're buyers. We've bought 4.5 tonnes of carbon removal to offset our flights. Bit different from the scales that Microsoft are looking at, however. Sizes and everything, Tom. It's what you do with it that counts. <laughs> so. Secondly, we wanted to break down Microsoft's broader climate strategy. Not just carbon removal, but also their focus around reductions and everything else that they're doing in this space. Mm, fingers in a lot of pies, I think. Good to know. We also wanted to pick Elizabeth's brain around how the space has developed since they got involved in early 2020. They are one of the thought leaders in this space, as we've mentioned, and lots has developed and changed since then. So it was a really good opportunity to get a better understanding of where things started, where they are now, and potentially what the future holds. Mm, Fast-moving industry. Great questions, Tom. Can't wait to hear how it went. Without further ado, let's roll the tape. Roll that tape. 
Liz, it's so good to have you here with us today. And the first thing we always like to ask anyone that we speak to is just, was there a particular moment in your career or in your life where I guess carbon removal became a bit of a thing for you? Was there something that really kind of catalyzed your interest in this? Well, in fourth grade, back in the 80s, <laughs> I knew that I wanted to work on environmental issues. I really loved playing in the forests and the streams of my neighborhood in New England in the Northeast of the United States and playing on the coast and the ocean. And I knew from that time forward that I wanted to work in environmental issues. And that evolved in the 2000s to want to focus on climate change. I started working on climate change in 2006 when I was in local government here in the Seattle area and saw firsthand the climate impacts that were starting to happen with regard to drought and the snowpack here in the United States. Even though Seattle is known as a rainy area, we actually have pretty persistent droughts, even with the rain that we get. And of course, that's nothing in comparison to what we're seeing the world around with the flooding and droughts and agricultural shortages and famine. And, and so the increasing climate impacts and climate consequences that we're seeing as a result of human impact on the atmosphere is incredibly motivating to me. And I have to say, I never thought that I would focus on carbon removal. I actually started before Microsoft as a climate activist, and I had and still have a healthy degree of skepticism about carbon offsets. So it was a funny sort of, I say it was like karma that I was starting to work on carbon removal at Microsoft because I was so critical of carbon offsets before joining. And it was not just a function of my new job that I, I focused on carbon removal. It was, in fact, it has become a very much a, a conversion story of really seeing the scientific and technical need for carbon removal in the era that we're in. The fact that even when, and I want to say when because I am optimistic about our ability to overcome our challenges, even when we deeply reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as a global economy, we still need carbon removal. And that's what climate science has told us. That's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us. And it is clear now that we have a backlog of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we need to draw down. So we have to do the impossible on two fronts. We have to not only reduce rapidly, but also then go back and clean up the mess we've made in the atmosphere. Totally. Well, thank you, firstly, for that. It's always really interesting to get people's insights on like why they got involved with things in the first place. And really interesting that you have been a skeptic of carbon removal initially. I think a lot of people are, especially in the climate activism space, We've spoken to so many people that have come from that space that are skeptical of it for good reason. In terms of Microsoft's approach, what is your own climate strategy? How does Microsoft kind of set that out? Sure. We, in 2019, heard from our executives that they wanted to focus boldly on climate change. Our executive president, Brad Smith, and our chief environmental officer, Lucas Joppa, as well as our CFO, Amy Hood, and our CEO, Satya Nadella, all said, to our team, we know that climate change is the existential threat, not only of this decade, but of this century. So we want you to go draft and design a bold strategy to make Microsoft a leader on this topic. And so that took the shape of our carbon negative commitment, which we issued in January of 2020. I co-designed that commitment with a number of colleagues, and that consists of cutting our greenhouse gas emissions across our value chain. So direct electricity-related supply chain product use emissions, all end-to-end, -end, cutting that by over half by 2030. That's a big, steep hill to climb. 
we're still experiencing the hills and valleys of that, the roller, it's a sort of lumpiness, the lumpiness of that journey. And then also at the same time, removing the equivalent of our annual emissions and then going further to remove the equivalent of our historical emissions. <laughs> and there's much to say about all of those elements. The way I would sum it up is that we're at the beginning of helping to develop not only a removal market, but helping to develop a sustainable aviation fuel market, a market for low-carbon semiconductors, markets for, we're already well into the journey with many other companies of helping to develop the renewable energy markets. So it's really a proposition of setting a goal, throwing the ball down the field, and then running after it. <laughs> and in the course of running after it, really trying to bring as many other folks along as we can and as we need to, to meet these goals. Because it's really fundamentally not about us as an individual company. We're just the beginning. We have to be able to rely on our suppliers and partner with our customers to make this change. And if Microsoft alone beats its goals or we try on our own, we simply won't, won't succeed. And we won't succeed as a globe because our emissions as one company are a drop in the bucket of what's, what's truly needed on a planetary basis. Definitely. Could you give us a sense of your approach to carbon removal? Like how's that developed? What does it look like since 2020 until now? In 2020, when we woke up on day two after our announcement, we were just about to head into the pandemic. We were still sort of blithely unaware of the, the new world that everyone was going to be living in. But we woke up on day two after the announcement and we said, well, we know we're going to have to procure. We know we have a procurement task ahead of us. So let's start small by issuing a request for proposals, a solicitation for any carbon removal credits that are out there today. Let's just find out. Let's just use that not only to purchase for this first year, but also to find out what's out there. Let's cast the net and see what comes back. And we did that. And we learned a lot. And we got 189 applications in that first year, a number of which were not actually for carbon removal, <laughs> and a number of which were for avoided emissions credits, from other types of carbon offsets, from the legacy carbon market that had existed since the 90s. And what we realized was there was not a common market definition for carbon removal at that time. And so we subsequently issued criteria that are published on our website. We published that with the Consulting Curb Carbon Direct. And then in the second year of our program, we got a much more focused set of proposals much more in line with what carbon removal actually is, meaning project pulls carbon out of the atmosphere, sequesters it for a defined period of time, ideally permanently, but can get into that in a minute, and that there's clear metrics for showing that that's actually happening. And that is one, is one of the biggest learnings that I've experienced from the first round of this journey is really beginning to answer the question, how do we know it's actually happening? <laughs> and how do we know its carbon is staying out of the atmosphere? That's not a given in a number of these projects, especially the nature-based projects, some of which I love and really have huge benefits, but it's not always a given. And so we have to be really clear about what we call the durability of carbon removal projects or the per some people call the permanence. How long is it actually staying out of the atmosphere? I guess that was one of the first RFP requests for proposals, right? I'm conscious that that's really has led change in the industry. Just as you said, even back then, there was confusion from carbon removal companies as to what carbon removal actually is. And you mentioned that you guys issued this criteria and you worked with Carbon Direct. 
So how does that relationship work? How have you developed that? Well, what we realized in the spring of 2020 when we were first setting this program up was that we did not have sufficient expertise in-house to be able to validate the proposals that were coming in. I have a science background, our executive has a science background, and probably have a bit of a Girl Scout ethic. Having been a climate activist, I didn't want to just spend Microsoft money on something that was going to be, you know, questionable. So we took it really seriously and we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to hire some outside technical advisors to help inform these monetary decisions and to do due diligence for us. And so we talked about it at the time in two ways. One was like having a fast twitch muscle <laughs> and the other was having a slow twitch muscle. And the fast twitch muscle was we needed a consulting firm or an external advisory partner who could quickly, rapidly review proposals for us and turn them around in time for us to make transaction decisions. We also needed a, sl a slower twitch muscle, which was more the strategic planning advice, basically helping us to chart the path from now to 2030, identifying the leading candidates of project types that would essentially comprise our highest quality portfolio in 2030. So for the first proposition of the fast twitch quick turn review, we hired Carbon Direct. Carbon Direct is a consulting firm that it consists of a number of different academic carbon removal experts from universities around the world. They span a gamut of different project types from forestry to direct air capture to soil to carbon mineralization. So we've relied on them as well as other consulting firms to help do that quick review. And then we've also partnered with, in the U.S., Lawrence Livermore National Lab to help develop a study that would show us what were the biggest bets we should make for 2030, what groundwork we should lay today to ensure that the decisions we're making today are reflective of the future we want to see in the coming eight years. And those types of partnerships have been really helpful. We also partnered with Carbon Plan, an NGO out of the U.S., out of the West Coast of the U.S. They're essentially a watchdog firm for carbon rural industry, which I Again, as a former climate activist, super, super appreciate, <laughs> you know, want them to help us all stay honest and accountable to the outcomes we're trying to drive and to what we're saying. And so we funded them on two occasions. One was to look at the climate risk associated with forestry projects, forest carbon projects, not only the wildfire risk, but also drought and pest disease risk for forestry projects, which was great great project. They actually used, it was really cool. They actually used Microsoft's AI for Earth technology to help do that analysis. And then we also subsequently funded them to do a review of soil carbon sequestration standards, which was really useful because it showed that there's uh, a lot of work we need to do as an industry to really understand if soil carbon projects are doing what they say they're doing. So those types of partnerships have really helped us tremendously. Is there any information that you've picked up on or gathered that, that's been really interesting? Yeah, the carbon removal market is a total seller's market right now. It's really on fire and it is really short supplied. And even the nature-based solutions, which are lower durability, are increasingly high in price. So we face a twin problem right now. We face a twin problem of not only driving to higher quality nature-based solutions that um, have risk mitigations in place for wildfire risk, human reversal, illegal logging, all the different risks that these nature-based solutions face. But also we face the, the other problem 
of really driving down the costs of high durability solutions like direct air capture, like carbon mineralization. And so we're not alone in this. You know, we've seen the U.S. Department of Energy really leaning in on this, coming out with not only their regional direct air capture hub program, but also as part of their broader carbon negative shot initiative, looking at criteria to help, again, drive convergence on what removal actually means and what high quality removal actually means. And we've seen the European Union climate team looking at driving carbon removal certification. And we really welcome those. We welcome those trends. We especially welcome government playing a role in oversight of standards and of certifications because they have the technical aptitude, they have the public interest at heart, the incentives are right, and they can provide that extra pair of watchful eyes and continuity over time to really help this market develop in a way that's not just driven by the gold rush mentality. And I think that is really, that to me is really crucial. It definitely feels like there's a gold rush mentality. I think on both sides, on like on buyers even that are interested in being able to show that they're buying these permanent credits to offset. And then the sellers obviously knowing that prices are going up. So, you know, your role may not have existed five years ago. How, how do you think it's going to change in the next five years even from now? Like, how do you see roles in the space developing? I see it maturing in a way that we've seen renewable energy maturing especially corporate renewable energy procurement. That market, corporate renewable energy commitments started ramping up about a decade ago. And since then, we've seen it getting more and more impactful, more and more finely tuned to what quality actually means and what outcomes, what, what positive validated outcomes actually mean for the climate. We've seen a real evolution in sophistication in the renewable energy market and in renewable energy buying. We've seen a lot more democratization of that in terms of more companies, more small and diverse companies being able to purchase renewable energy. And I see the I see re carbon removal in the future following a similar maturity path. But we need to do it so much faster. <laughs> all of these things are driven by the massive deadline we all face of avoiding climate catastrophe. And so to me, it's a really fascinating question of how do we accelerate this market development in not only carbon removal, but also semiconductors, also other low carbon materials and sustainable aviation fuel to all help collectively meet this global net zero commitment. And so for me, and in fact, we're starting to really think about this much more from a, a very commercial market development lens, such that. We really need to bring on board buyers who who have that mindset. You know, we've we've moved out of sort of the on our team, we've moved out of the startup entrepreneurial mode of we're getting this program started, we're getting the first generation of this program started and learning our lessons. We now have to move into more of a steady state of buying. And so I think you can anticipate seeing us and other companies in our position starting to hire more hire more commercial buyers who may not yet have experience in carbon removal buying, but who can adapt from these other markets to start to start really driving these types of transactions. Just so I'm getting this straight then. So you're, you're kind of looking to expand your team to focus on buying, sourcing the supply. Is, is that correct? Yes, exactly. And also partner with other companies, as we've done with the most recent announcement, the First Movers Coalition co-hosted by the World Economic Forum and the U.S. State Department to commit that we will buy, each company will collectively buy a committed volume of carbon removal by 2030. Microsoft committed $200 million 
to spend $200 million by 2030 toward carbon removal. That's just part of our overall program commitment. We were also in that joined by Google and Salesforce in that initiative. And we can see, I think we can expect to see a lot more of these early movers really trying to break down the initial barriers so that the the next wave of buyers and of market development can can proceed. And for the early movers, because obviously Microsoft is leaps and bounds ahead of many, many organizations that are looking at carbon removal now. How does a smaller business that is looking to engage in this industry, how do they engage considering that the supply is an issue and the knowledge gap is still there for lots of people? It's a great question. We need to have in this marketplace, we need to have not only clear standards for what carbon removal actually means, and we need to have essentially aggregated buying platforms for these smaller suppliers. Because if Microsoft's experience is indicative, and I believe it is, we have a hard enough time doing due diligence on these projects. We're a large company. We're well-staffed. We're well-resourced. We would love to be able to rely on external standards to say, okay, you get the seal of approval. These projects get the seal of approval. You can proceed. It hasn't been that simple. It hasn't been that simple because carbon removal is not a uniform commodity. There's a lot of variation from one project to another. And it's, it's currently, it's not practical to try to compare projects on an apples to apples basis. And so in order for, I think that's a precondition for anything, even before we talk about aggregated buying or easier solutions for procurement, the number one precondition is people need to know what they're getting. <laughs> and that's not, that's just not true today. So if you're looking ahead to 2030, do you have a sense of what sort of portfolio of approaches you guys will be supporting? And are there any that are, I guess, particularly exciting to you? We know that we need to purchase higher durability tons, higher durability carbon removal, because that is what is going to drive the climate outcome of carbon dioxide staying out of the atmosphere as permanently as possible. Even Microsoft, we didn't have two things. We did not have enough money at the time in our program in the past two years to do that. So we redesigned our, car our internal carbon fee, which may be the topic for a different podcast, but we have an internal carbon fee that we charge to business groups to create funding for this work and other work relatedly. And we redesigned that fee to collect enough funding and to have enough confidence in our future funding stream to be able to make forward commitments to carbon removal. So we're starting to make multi-year commitments to specific carbon removal projects to send a demand signal to the industry and to, to businesses that these projects are bankable and that this need will continue and that investors should invest. <laughs> and so the, there's sort of a twin excitement there. There's the not only the fact that we're able to do more high durability tons, but also that we have this new carbon fee, this redesigned carbon fee We've set it so that it will start to track the cost of abatement, the cost of not only removal, but also the cost of sustainable aviation fuel as we go forward so that we can help to jumpstart those markets. Fantastic. Any particular projects that are really taking your eye at the moment? I'm really excited about the potential convergence of carbon removal and sustainable aviation fuel in companies like 12, formerly known as Obis 12, who take carbon dioxide and turn it into fuel, low carbon fuel. I think that that type of circular economy is really, really useful. I also get really excited by, this is not a particular project that we're investing in, but I really get excited by using waste products like asbestos to help make good <laughs> and pull carbon out of the atmosphere. 
that's a obviously complicated topic that requires a lot of environmental review due to the toxic nature of, of asbestos. But if we can think about how to use these waste materials in a way to convert them to useful technologies for decarbonization, I think that's fantastic. And if we can start to think about, I guess I'll leave you with this, if we can start to think about carbon, not just as a waste product, not just as a pollution product, but as something we can recycle and something we can use in the circular economy, I think we'll make a lot more traction. Because if we just treat it as a waste product, then it's it has a different, it doesn't have the same monetary value. And I think in this day and age, we do need that. We do need to place place a value. Now, if you're feeling inspired by what you've heard so far and you wish you could do more to rid the atmosphere of carbon, great news, you can. One of our sponsors, Patch, is the platform for climate action. They make it easy for businesses and their end customers to neutralize their carbon footprint. Patch works with companies in crypto, fintech, e-commerce and more to embed carbon removal projects into their products and services or provide companies with the option to purchase carbon removal from vetted projects right from their platform. That means businesses can build carbon negative products and features that enable climate action at scale. Build something climate positive with Patch. Head to patch.io slash TCRS to learn how. Super cool. Great interview, Tom. I mean, so interesting to hear from Liz about everything that Microsoft's doing, but also to hear about her and her background, especially. And particularly in light of the things that we've talked about before in this season about broadening who's involved in this conversation around carbon removal. I just love that she's come from a background of activism and finds herself in this position with one of the biggest buyers of carbon removal in 2022. One of the privileges that we have being co-hosts of this show is that we get to speak with amazingly talented, amazingly smart, incredibly motivated individuals. We also get the chance to hear their background, hear their story, why they got involved with carbon removal in the first place. And Liz is a perfect example of that. And I loved hearing the framing of her story as she puts it in this conversion story of coming from a background of climate activism and and having this healthy degree of skepticism towards carbon removal to now running and operating the carbon program at Microsoft. I think it's an amazing testament to both the carbon removal space and to her for being able to make that a reality. Yeah, I think in a funny way, it sort of makes me feel like we're in safe hands. Mm. You know, if Microsoft are one of the big influences in this space. And by all accounts, I think they are, simply because of the resources that they're throwing at it. And Liz is sort of steering the ship with her healthy dose of skepticism. That makes me feel confident in sort of the decisions that are going to be made there, you know? You don't really want somebody blindly going in with a ton of optimism and and no sense of the other side of the story. And from everything that we heard in this interview, I think Microsoft are doing a really great job. I love the talk about legacy emissions. I think that that's really important and something that you don't hear very much about when companies are talking about net zero. I love their collaborative approach, you know, working with other businesses, seeing what other companies are doing and how they can get support from consultants and various people in the field. We've got to work together. I also loved that image of the slow twitch, fast twitch muscle. 
and thinking about the carbon removal space in a short-term and a long-term framing simultaneously, which again, takes a lot of resources to do. But I think sort of answers that call that we've come back to a lot in the show of the urgency of carbon removal versus the understanding that we're not there yet. You know, we don't actually have the industry fully formed and we're going to have to keep doing this into the future. A final reflection that I have from the conversation with Liz was this theme of circularity. At the very end of our conversation, Liz talked about initiatives and projects that she's really excited about. And that brings me back to the part two of our Iceland trip, when we spoke to businesses who seem to be really adopting the circular economy approach. And that just really excited me. Yes, I was also very grateful that Liz mentioned that because ever since we got into it in Iceland, it's just been buzzing in my head, you know, this connection between carbon removal and the circular economy and how, you know, when you when you sort of blow away all the dust, they're so intrinsically linked. I feel like we'll be coming back to this, Tom, because it's huge, but I, it was great to hear Liz talk about it. Totally. So bringing ourselves back to reality somewhat, it's all well and good speaking to big players like Microsoft that have big, big resources to throw at these initiatives. And we need that desperately. But what if you're a smaller business? What if you're not the size of Microsoft and you still want to engage with carbon removal in some form? You want to flex this fast and slow twitch carbon removal muscle, but you can't necessarily do it in the way that Microsoft can due to the sheer amount of resources that they have. What do you do? Yeah, I think it can be a bit overwhelming to hear of all the work that these big companies are doing. But I tell you what, Tom, let's just speak to a smaller company and see how they're getting on. Next time on the Carbon Removal Show, we're going to be getting a different perspective on this to try and understand how businesses of all sizes can get involved. Until next time, listeners. Stay cool out there. <laughs> Keep removing that carbon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks to everyone who makes this show possible. Our researcher and fact checker, Henry Irvine. Our composer, Sam Carter. Our graphic designer, Reke Campbell. Our content manager, Jordan Brooks. Our guest booker, Anna DeWolf Evans. Our editor, Mercy Barno. Our producer, Ben Weaver Hinks. Our project manager, Patrick Carter. And our executive producer, Sam Floyd. Thank you so much for listening to the Carbon Removal Show. Follow us on Twitter at RestoredCC, follow us on LinkedIn at The Carbon Removal Show, and you can visit our website, restored.cc. We're all over the internet. And please remember to give us a rate and review. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Co-fruition. Okay,